0: Hello and welcome to episode 14 of Foreign Correspondence, a podcast about journalists. I'm Jake Spring, a foreign correspondent with more than eight years experience in Brazil and China. This week, I spoke to Janet Morgan, the editor of the Myrtle Beach Herald, a weekly newspaper located in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. Janet and I used to work together at Myrtle Beach's daily newspaper called The Sun News, which was my first real job after graduating from college and where she worked principally as a photographer at the time. As we'll discuss, things are pretty grim for local newspapers— But that all aside, this is an extremely entertaining interview. I don't want to spoil it, but the story about the cocaine bust is probably about the wildest thing we've heard on the podcast so far. You wouldn't necessarily know it right away since Janet is so funny and does not take herself too seriously. But under it all, she's an extremely talented and committed journalist. I remember her just cleaning up the photography awards at the South Carolina Press Awards the one year I went. And where many have quit the business, Janet is still out there getting it done. She has documented so many great All-American stories, like the ones about the steel mill and the one-room schoolhouse that she describes on this episode. And I say documented, because in each case, she really followed the subjects over a long period of time, rather than just dipping in and out. You've probably noticed by now that there's a fair bit of inside baseball on this podcast. We'll name drop and chit chat about people we know in common, at least a little bit on most episodes. Do you like that? Hate it? Should I be cutting that out? Send me an email at foreignpod at gmail.com to let me know. Anyway, with no further need for introduction, here's Janet Morgan, editor of the Myrtle Beach Herald. just to double check, you're working for Myrtle Beach Herald now? Or? Yeah, the Herald. Okay, cool.
1: It's part of a six newspaper chain. It sounds with, more impressive than it is. There's only two people at each newspaper. It's not gotcha. like a conglomeration.
0: Okay, cool. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. I'm talking to Janet Morgan with the Myrtle Beach Herald. Thanks for doing this.
1: Yeah, man. Yeah, you're my guy. I'll do it for you. <laughs>
0: Appreciate it. Just to warm up, tell me a bit about where you are geographically, what time it is what's what kind of week you've had that sort of thing
1: um i am in myrtle beach i'm on my back porch actually it feels like it's the Nesser tropical storm or whatever it's called today so there's probably going to be a little bit of wind noise maybe i'm the editor at the myrtle beach herald and i was drunk all week i was in new orleans
0: on vacation so you're going back to work on monday yeah 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 unfortunately <laughs> Okay to start way, way back at the beginning. Where were you born? <laughs> and uh, can you tell me a little bit about you know what it was like growing up wherever that was?
1: Um, I was born in Sacramento. my dad was the Air Force and um, we moved around a little bit and my grandmother was in a car accident and she had lost both of her legs in the car accident. That was my oh, wow. dad's mom so we moved back to Lancaster. It's a little town near just south of
0: Charlotte in okay. uh, South Carolina. How old were you when that Um, happened?
1: Fifth grade, I think.
0: Okay. I mean, obviously that's horrible about your grandmother, but for you as a kid, I mean, did that beat... The moving around with your dad?
1: No, I love the
0: moving around. My
1: brothers oh, okay. didn't like it. I have two brothers. I like moving around because I used to talk a lot in class and get in trouble. And I knew it wouldn't follow me forever. So I could go from one school to the other with like being labeled a bad kid immediately when I came
0: in. <laughs> sure. <so. laughs> and uh, Lancaster, I mean, I'm guessing it was small town, really small school, that sort of situation. Yeah, well,
1: it was kind of even when we moved there, there were a lot of people. The land was cheaper in South Carolina than North Carolina so um mm-hmm. and you got paid more in Charlotte so like the suburb basically of Charlotte even then it's more so now but even then it was moving in that direction so we wasn't really that small of a school like we had 550 people in my graduating class so Oh wow
0: yeah that's big yeah. compared to mine yeah. We had like 150 or something. So, uh, God. it was you, your two brothers, your dad, your grandma, all living in the mom. same house. And your mom all in yeah. the same house.
1: Well, my grandma lived next door. We bought the house next door, and we lived next door
0: to her. Okay, and growing up was good. I don't know this, if there's anything else more to say <laughs> about it. Did you? I mean, did you get involved in, in, in like your school paper, or did it? And usually, the next step no. is uh, you know what got you interested in journalism.
1: Yeah, I went to school at USC, uh, South Carolina. I was actually a nursing major primarily oh, wow. because you could only yeah. Back Back in the day, there used to be catalogs that would describe what each major and their prereqs and stuff for it. And um, I got to nursing and it only had one math. So I was like, yep, I'm doing that. <laughs> I was a junior when I changed majors and I was pretty close to graduating, but I was doing a rotation with the cancer ward and people were dying and it just, it was emotionally too difficult. I made good grades and all. I just, it was just too too emotionally hard to get close to people and, you know, they die within the semester. It's tough.
2: And yeah, well.
1: I was thinking about dropping out and I was, just you know having a horrible semester and a friend of mine in my dorm was taking a photography photojournalism class and she had left her camera in her dorm room and she asked me to walk it down to the j school for her. and i didn't have anything to do so i was walking across campus and like just in the short walk across campus not all at one time but three like really good looking guys were like hey take my picture and i was like cool Sure, and I was thinking, damn, a, a camera is like a guitar for boys or something. This is, <laughs> this is great. So I was like, yep, I'm doing this, and cool. you know, then I fell wow. in love. I fell in love with it, obviously, but yeah, it was, it was to meet boys originally. <laughs>
0: So you switched your major and and it was everything or just photojournalism or did you like choose a specification uh, or something?
1: It was journalism, mass communications. We did all the stuff, but I just like loved the photography of it. So I took extra photojournalism courses, but I still, my major was still just reporter when I got out.
0: Gotcha. And was that the day when it was still film cameras and all that or spend a lot of time in dark rooms and that? Uh,
1: Yes. Dark rooms, yes. The wonderful smell of the chemicals and stain your fingers and your clothes. It was great.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I remember in high school, that was the only time we ever used film cameras. And, you know, everybody wanted to do the photography unit in technical education because you got to go in the dark room and you could kind of, the teachers couldn't see what you were doing in there. So that was the main appeal. (laughs) But, yeah. uh, Yeah, you can play
1: music and...
0: Yep. But uh, are you nostalgic for that era?
1: I miss film. The feel of it's different. The look of it's different.
0: So uh, you graduate. And what did you do after you came out of school?
1: I got a job at, it was a three times leaked paper, and I was told that I was going to be a reporter photographer, and it was at the beach. It wasn't the Sun News. When I got there, they were like, okay, now you're the paste-up girl, and that's what you're going to be. And, you know, I I was like, no, that, that can't be right. And they were like, yeah, that's what you're going to do we already have people to write and shoot so you're just going to be putting wax on the back of copy and pasting <laughs> it up and some girl she was, it was, it's a family on paper and some girl said, you "No, know, you better not come in next Friday and I thought she was going to beat me up and I didn't want to be there anyway You know, it was kind of a false pretenses thing they didn't let me do what I was hired to do so I was going to quit, I didn't know why this other person was so angry at me so I just went in and quit and I was like yeah, I'm not coming in anymore, give my check and I had applied it a couple of other papers and turned them down because i wanted to live at the beach and i've i i got another job, and that editor was like, come on Monday, you know, we already have you an apartment, just come on. So by the time I got there Monday, just a couple of days later, the state police led, had gone in and raided the whole building and arrested everybody for, um, <laughs> yeah, for, it's kind of a cool plan if, if you're into cocaine distribution. Two of the members of the staff would go out and ask people if you want to subscribe to the paper and buy coke, and so you subscribe <laughs> to the paper, and they would Fold it into the paper when they throw it in your yard. They'd fold the coat into the paper when they throw it in your yard. That's a really good plan. But they, what year you know, was they this sold
0: it, that people were sold doing? Sold it to
1: this. the wrong person. <laughs> it was uh 88 i believe
0: huh wow so turned
1: out to be not a good plan because they all got put in jail but still you know had they been more careful i don't know how long it lasted but i know that the first couple of days at the new paper they were like god are you the narc and i was like no nope, i didn't i didn't even know about it shit
0: huh so wait this was the first or the second paper that got busted the, the one where the girl the threatened you the, Oh, okay.
1: Yeah, the the first paper got busted. And um, Mm -hmm. when I went to the second paper, because it was national news, you know, when you go in and arrest the entire newspaper staff. <laughs>
2: and
1: um, they were like, is that where you were? And I was like, yep. And I didn't know about it. And they were like, God, are you the one that narked on them? And I was like, no, nah, no. Nah. And that was honestly, in Myr- I, Myrtle Beach area? Uh, I don't know if I want to say it on recording. It was okay, near here. It was near. <laughs> um, but shit, gotcha. I did cocaine when I was in college. I, w- I would have, like, taken some of the cocaine. I mean, I probably would have helped if I had known about it.
0: I mean, it was the 80s. I Here was the time to be doing it.
1: <laughs> Why not?
0: But, I mean, uh, it sounds like things couldn't have worked out better that you were able to go (laughs) that job not work out you didn't get involved in a cocaine ring and somebody else gave you a job like well over the course of a weekend basically
1: yeah yeah it worked out pretty well i went to a um another little family on paper mainly because i was just desperate so i got this other job in a little town called lawrence south carolina and Uh, um it was a three times a week paper and i was the photographer and reporter there so i got to do what i was supposed to do but i only stayed there I think a year.
0: And Does that paper still exist?
1: Yeah, yeah, it's owned by the Brown family. They're just they're the nicest people. Anytime you had a good story, somebody would bring you a big glass of vodka to drink.
2: <laughs>
1: <yeah>. <laughs> they're nice, you know. They're they're good good people.
0: And starting out, was it what you had imagined things would be like when you were in college and you first started taking photos?
1: Well, I wanted to be a bigger paper to start off. I wanted to go cover wars and You know, that kind of thing. But everyone always cautioned you as a student, you know, you can't start there. You have to start someplace small, get some clips, and after a couple of years, you can go to someplace larger. So... I felt you like I was in, paying my dues, and that was fine.
0: And then you made a jump to where? Do you make a bunch of jumps before you go to the, the Sun News, or um, what's the progression?
1: Yeah, I went to a daily north of Raleigh called the Daily Dispatch, and from there I went to the Sun Journal in New Bern, and from New Bern I went to I think we moved to Richmond at that point and my husband got a job up in Richmond and I was Richmond, Virginia. Yeah. Yeah. I was out in newspapers for about, about a year, I guess. And, um, Came back to the Carolinas and and got the job at the Sun News.
0: Gotcha. And the whole way through, I mean, mean, were you always reporter slash photographer? I imagine everywhere you went, it was kind of you shoot or cover whatever's going on.
2: Yeah,
1: yeah. Because most photographers can't write as well. They shoot. So I had a little extra bargaining chip when I got jobs. So, you know, I can do both.
0: And I guess going through all those jobs, do any particular anecdotes or stories you did or anything stick out?
1: Yeah, well, when I was in New Bern, we were very close to Cherry Point uh, Marine Air Corps Station, and that was my beat was to cover the Marines. And at the time, the Gulf War was going on. The first Gulf War was going on. And I got to go with some troops over. And for a couple of months, I got to be with some troops covering that. And it was in Haiti, a bunch of the refugees were fleeing. And they were getting caught by american forces and sent to guantanamo so it was like guantanamo had turned into this giant prison at that point or holding facility and we got to go down there and cover that really this was
0: when this was when you were based where i already blanked on the name burn. new brunswick or new Bern?
1: burn yeah okay. it's on the coast of north carolina
0: gotcha New Bern. and there was a big military yeah. base there, Cherry Point.
1: You've, you've heard of uh, Lejeune, right? Camp Lejeune? I don't
0: know if I have.
1: Okay, It's well, possible. There, that's huge marine base in Jacksonville. There, that's the ground fruit marine's base out of there. The flying marines come out of Cherry Point. So they had harriers mm-hmm. and jets and stuff.
0: And so uh, we're, we're talking the first Gulf War, yeah. you yeah. said. So that's the one where Saddam Hussein invades Kuwait, right? Yes, yes.
1: The first Bush was president.
0: But you got sent to cover the troops?
1: Yeah. We were just kind of there to tell the people stories, basically the Marine stories that we were with.
0: Gotcha. So, uh, I mean, were you excited for that? Were you scared? I mean, you it sounded like early on you had always wanted to go cover oh, man, I, war was,
1: and stuff like that. It was wonderful. It was wonderful. I had a great time. It was cool. I was It was exciting. I don't know if I slept more than three hours at a time the whole time I was there. I didn't want to miss anything.
0: Did it feel dangerous? Did you even think about that part?
1: We didn't see any combat at all. We were with a support group. We didn't see anything or hear anything, really. We heard a a couple of nights where we thought We were here in bombing, but we had trucks that they filled up with stuff and moved from one location to the other, and we weren't in in danger.
0: Gotcha. And that war was relatively quick, if I remember correctly. But uh, it's still crazy to me that I feel like these days, the latest Iraq war, for example, I feel like you wouldn't see a ton of local papers sending correspondence. I guess things hadn't changed by that point. Um, Well, you
1: still would, yeah, because our local paper covered that Marine Bay and like that was my beat and I think it still happens like the reporters in Jacksonville that cover Lejeune they still go places where those Marines go it's just a matter of living in a military town does that make any sense?
0: Yeah that does I guess it makes sense that the people in the military town want to know what's going on with the soldiers who are their friends and relatives over there so you're not necessarily focused as much on you know covering the country of Iraq or whatever you're more interested in covering the people who back home there's demand to read about how the troops are doing. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah.
1: And what they're doing, as much as we can tell, but not necessarily the eagle-eye view of it. It's more you've got, like, Sally Joe wondering what her husband's doing today, and she hasn't heard from him in a while.
2: So yeah, what local kind, kind local of stuff reporters what do you do? Local
1: still get sent out. They still, to this day, if that's their beat, they go cover it.
0: And do you so remember... the rules have
1: changed now. It's probably not as many as we're allowed to go before.
0: Was it mostly profiling people or what What sort of stuff was it?
1: Yeah, profiling people In the experience of dealing with the sand and the weather. And it was cold. And it, it was basically just covering each encampment that we were at.
0: Okay. And then the other one you mentioned was refugees coming up from Haiti. Yeah, yeah.
1: this would have been in the 90s at some point. It was a huge refugee crisis in Haiti. A lot of people were leaving and they couldn't go back. They were going to get killed if they went back. I think it was Papa Doc. But I, I can't 100% remember. Oh,
0: the dictator? Yeah, yeah.
1: Because there was Papa Doc and Baby Doc. But I, whichever one of them, they were, started to kill people and people fled. And they were just trying to make it to Florida. And they were getting scooped up by the military and taken to Guantanamo. I think that around that time is when Guantanamo changed its mission. It's supposed to be a military base, just a standard military base. And when the refugees came in, they put up razor wire really quickly and put in all these i didn't know what they were at the time just they just look like tents but if you've covered hurricanes and stuff you know what fema tents look like that's what they look like and i guess now that's what you're seeing on the news with what's going on on the borders when they're holding people in these giant white
0: tents everybody uh, my age remembers guantanamo for you know holding terrorists after september 11th and things like yeah. that
1: you know 9-11 happened and it became something very different
0: and you got sent down there for how long
1: That was a quick trip. It was less than a week, but I can't remember how many days we were there. There was like me and a couple of national paper people and a couple of national TV station
2: people.
0: On both this and the Gulf War thing, you were the one person sent from your paper. So you were doing photos and text for all your stories.
2: Yeah. And the Haitian
0: thing was
1: actually a little bit more eagle eye view than the Gulf War thing. The Haitian thing, the Marines that we were with really didn't do a whole lot. They just kind of stood there. They were (laughs) delivering some supplies. They would have guard posts, but it's not like there was a lot of interaction. But I found a guy that I don't know what base he was from. He wasn't from our base, but he was a translator and he was great. He grew up in Haiti, so he understood the language and, and everything. So he would just kind of walk us around. And me and the New York Times reporter, we were the only ones that didn't get sick on the boat ride. So we just kind of palled around and we found the translator and got him to go do some stories about the refugees with us so we can understand what they were saying and stuff
0: oh so they did let you go into the refugee camp and talk to refugees it wasn't that restricted like you hear guantanamo and you assume that they're not going to let you run around and talk to people but
1: We, we weren't running around everything was surrounded by this chain link fence and there was like this giant gymnasium it was just full people barely had room to like sit down and the refugees would see the press there and they would crush the fence and everyone was trying to give us their IDs and they wanted us to call the relatives in Miami and let them know that they were alive and you know it was just full-blown panic of everyone thinks I'm dead call my aunt tell her I'm okay call my brother tell him I'm here and take my ID so that you can give it to them a lot of very frightened frightened people they were trying to get to freedom and now they're in this and a lot of them didn't understand what was happening and why it was happening and their relatives are in you know in America like where are they they were supposed to be here
0: so you profiled a few of the refugees what, what ended up happening to most of the people do you know if they did end up eventually making it to the US or
1: yeah they, were they sent, sent back a lot or how they, did that work yeah they sent a lot of people back people were very afraid of AIDS at the time as well uh, like if you had a criminal record or if you were HIV positive you didn't get to come I honestly can't remember clearly I followed it when I was working on it, but I can't remember what happened to the majority of the people. I know the majority of them did not get to come to America, but I know I made, uh, it must have been 150 phone calls to people in Miami to let them know, you know, I had an ID from this guy and he told me to tell you he's alive. And they would give me their address and I would send the ID badge to them. I don't know if they got in trouble in Guantanamo for not having an ID badge, but they would just give them to us. And the translator never said, don't take that or anything. So.
0: And do you remember anything you wrote or any photos you took from that time?
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. That was a pretty emotional story. I wished I had had the capability. If, if it were a larger paper, obviously, I would have been allowed to go down to Miami and talk to the relatives that were waiting here. but small paper resources.
0: So then after that paper, that's when you go to Richmond and then... You end up at the Sun News, yeah. And do you have any idea like what time period it was you ended up at the Sun News, just so I can compare when I was there?
1: Yeah, I got there in '97.
0: In '97. Okay, so yeah. it must have been very, very different when you showed up, because when I showed up, the printing press area was completely empty. You know, it, really? it was How like. You there? Uh, so I got the job in 2010. I must have started. Oh. Yeah. oh.
1: Oh, Jack! I thought you were there before that. Yeah. So we were McClatchy when you got there.
0: Yeah, yeah. So when you okay. you showed up in '97, we were night the then. Night runners. Uh, okay. Yeah. Okay.
1: If you were there in '10, I don't know how many people would have been in the newsroom then. But when I got there in '97, we had about a hundred people alone that worked in the newsroom. Wow. Uh, so people had to share a desk, and you know, somebody would work the early morning shift, and then the night people would come in and take that desk.
0: Oh, wow. So at the time, I mean, did Myrtle Beach Sun News seem like a big step up from where you were
2: at?
1: Yeah, 100 people. Hell yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And I'm sure you heard this when you were here. Horry County, where Myrtle Beach is, is larger than the state of Rhode Island. And we covered... From the beach all the way up into Florence and up into Brunswick County in North Carolina and down through Georgetown, so we had a large geographical area to
0: cover. And were you hired on to be just a photographer at that point yeah, because it was big, big enough? Yeah, it was big yeah. enough that they didn't need people to kind of double up do right, everything. Right. Because I remember when I got there, there were five photographers full-time, which I guess in retrospect is still a lot compared to the size of the staff when I showed up. But when you got there, I mean, was it a lot more than that?
1: We had several special publications. So I think we had eight uh, photographers, and one of them was specific for Saturday Magazine and this other publication we did. I can't remember the name of it, but the rest of us would cover news. But also while I was there, like if there was a special project or something I wanted to work on I was given the freedom to go do that and come back with the story and the words and the photos so I still got to write in addition to shooting the daily stuff when I wanted to work on a special project I would get to go just do that and that's unusual today but get to take a couple of weeks just to go flesh out a story without doing other stuff in the middle of it
0: sure um, so I
1: appreciated that. I mean, that was that was wonderful.
0: When I showed up, I would hear these stories about the glory days of the paper. And it sounds like big staff, time to go work on projects like that. Mm-hmm. It sounded like people had a very, very good time also. Like, yeah. <laughs> it seemed like more of a party atmosphere. And I mean, I kind of got the vibe from my boss it was Dawn, for example, that working at a pa- big paper at the beach was like her dream. And when I showed up, it was in kind of a sorry state. You would walk into the back. It would be empty. We were in this giant building with so few people working, and it felt kind of cave-like to me.
1: Did it had become like a ghost of what it had been, yeah.
0: How did that happen over time? And walk me through the paper getting bought and all that. I guess, what was it like being there over, you must have been there, what, 15 years or something? 10, I was 15? there 20, yeah, oh, 20 wow.
1: total, yeah. Night started having some financial problems. They bought a lot of papers and some of those papers weren't doing very well. The Sun News always did well. They had the highest profit margin. And we seemed to be immune from what was happening in the corporation. And, like, they were using some of our money to beef up some of the other papers and to pay their bills, basically. And I guess the Knight Ritter board was just tired of dealing with it is all I can figure. We weren't really told a whole bunch. But I know there was some financial concerns. And then McClatchy came in and bought Knight Ritter. And Knight Ritter owned Miami Harris. Philadelphia Inquirer, they had some big flagship papers that they owned. And the idea when you went to work for Knight Ritter was you do really well at this paper, then when there's a job opening at this other Knight Ritter paper, it's easier to get that job. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. But around the time everyone was thinking about leaving was when we had hiring freezes, and then McClatchy bought us, and then we started having layoffs. Um, It's less than 20 people that work in the newsroom now. I do know that. Um,
0: Okay, down from uh, 100, you said. Yeah, yeah. So that's deep cuts. Yeah. Do you remember when around that happened? I mean, was that – how long did the good days at the paper last –
1: through probably 2008. Seems okay, like two, yeah, the
0: financial crisis, seems like, yeah.
1: Seems like around 2008 is when everything started going south.
0: When I showed up, there was... A small group of five photographers. There were maybe 10 reporters, I would guess, and a few yeah. editors and some a couple of copy editors. Uh, yeah, I wish I remembered they, better how many people there were.
1: Yeah, then they started laying off copy editors and designers. They started making that a hub up in Charlotte and Columbia. And then I think it's all now done in Charlotte, but a you know, I don't work
0: there anymore. So I don't know. At that point, the kind of ladder was shut off or did you want to stay in Myrtle Beach?
1: Well, I wanted to stay here. I felt like this area is probably a good fit for my personality because if I get bored covering something, I can drive 10 miles and it's a whole different world. And you know I can be interested in that for a little while and then drive 10 more miles and it's different than the other places.
0: Yeah, for sure. I mean, I definitely got that like you drive inland to Conway or farther and it's uh, you know to Ainer or whatever. Ainer. Yeah. It's uh <laughs> yeah. <laughs> gets uh from like vibrant beach to like kind of depressed rural area pretty quickly. Yeah. Farmers, um, yeah. And yeah, I mean, I, I, I used to love driving around Myrtle Beach on, you know, the tourism beach just seeing what was going on from North Myrtle down to, what was it, Surfside and all those. And if you, the farther south you went, it got a little bit more bougie in the direction of Charleston and whatnot. Yeah, yeah. But in retrospect, I wish I had known how good I had it. <laughs> I'd gotten out of school and it was the financial crisis Crisis. And so I was out of work for like nine months. I moved to New York to do an internship and like spent all my money and went broke and had to move back home. And oh. then a friend put me in touch with another friend, this guy, Mike Cherney, uh, who I'd met once or twice Mike. in college. And yeah. and yeah, he put me in touch with Don. And, you know, there had been a string of Northwestern people who had gone through that business reporter position. So that kind of all yeah, worked I out. And the I moved Northwestern there.
1: pipeline for a while. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Yeah, yeah, definitely. Because, yeah. Definitely. yeah, Adva also went to Northwestern, of yeah. memory reserves. Yeah, so I think Lisa
1: Fleischer did. Was she there when you were there?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think she I, was
1: Northwestern.
0: She was, yeah. And I was lucky to get the job, and I moved down there and, you know, making enough money at least to, like, buy a car and have an apartment and live with uh, above the local news anchor's garage. Um, <laughs> and, yeah, I mean, there were tons of stories. Like, I got to cover tourism and had a column with like my face on it and people online might have made fun of me mercilessly for looking like I was 12 years old, but it was still my own column. and You know, a couple planes crashed while I was there. I'm trying to think all what happened, but Nikki Haley won the governorship and, you know, I remember going when the Tea Party endorsed her in the Kmart parking lot and, you know, they had laid off the state house, not laid off, uh, Zane had retired and they didn't replace her, so I was basically, whenever Nikki Haley showed up, I'd go chase her around and yell at her about tourism taxes or something like that. My problem there is, the whole time I was like, I kind of saw how things were going and that people were getting laid off and the staff kept shrinking and I didn't feel like if I worked there a few years, they would give me a job at, like, Columbia at the state and, you know, I didn't see that path going to bigger and bigger papers. I
1: think that path was severed. right. Around- around the time either right before you got there or or as you were there i don't remember people leaving for you know larger paper jobs after that
0: yeah so i mean i struck
1: out on their own kind of stuff similar to what you did
0: yeah, yeah. I mean, I was like, I've got to scrimp and save and figure something out because I don't know that this is the future here, yeah. um, even though I was having a, a good time and getting good stories and all that. But is anybody still that we know at the Sun News? Al Blondin. You remember Al? Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, of course. Al's
1: still there. Has he Uh, changed his
0: ways or is he still
1: Hell no, that's Al blinded man.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Rolling up to the strip club (laughs) with his cooler.
1: Yes. Yeah. I think it's just Al. I think it's just Al, honestly.
0: I, I know feel bad because left... Al, go and ahead. You
1: know Al, he's the golf reporter. And he would go to, it seems like every golf tournament there was nationally. He covered golf. And I think the last year I was there, I left in 2017. His travel budget was just like nothing. He couldn't even go anywhere. And right after I left, I noticed that he was writing cop stories and I saw him at a bar shortly after that and he was like, yeah, I'm night cops reporter sometimes. <laughs> so so Al is probably one of the best journalists that's out there. He really is. He's just really good at what he does. And it's a shame that the industry has changed so much that's not really getting out to the public the way it should be.
0: He passed on to me some great tips. Yeah. Like he would just hear things and it wouldn't be about sports or golf necessarily. I mean, at least one big story I got was because of him. He told me to show up at this place at this time. There will be a hearing about this. (laughs) So I did.
1: He knew everyone and And, everyone knew him and still does.
0: Now, I don't know how how he feels about this, if I shouldn't be talking about him going to strip clubs, but the last story... (laughs) I did about Myrtle Beach before I left the Sun News. I think I wrote it and sent it in the week after I left the paper was about just the astonishing number of strip clubs that were in Horry County. And like there were 19. So like per capita of strip clubs was extremely high. And just nobody ever wrote about this. And, you know, Brad Dean and the guy...
1: From what I've heard, he's working on a – because of the decline of the number of golf courses we have here, golf courses are closing. Right. Well, you know, when a golf course closes, a strip club closes. So um, (laughs) he was telling me about working on this story, and he was like, you better fucking not take that from me. And I was like, dude, if anyone's going to write about strip clubs, it has to come from you. (laughs) No doubt.
0: Yeah. (laughs) I mean, my story that I did was basically like – going around to strip clubs with al he's like yeah. sure i'll take yeah. you around and he gets all these people to talk to you and back rooms and stuff like yeah. that that would definitely not have talked to me if i had just rolled up and yeah. knocked on their doors um <laughs> but i feel bad he actually got in touch with me a few times because he was looking into chinese buyers of golf courses and i felt bad because he would always be like it's You know, I can't remember the name, but like Jung Pan, he's a rich Chinese guy. The name of his company is like, you know, pick your grab bag of Chinese company names, like uh, Auspicious Phoenix, whatever. And I I could never help him. I'm like, they're like... A billion Chinese people. There are like 100,000 people with that name. Like with just the internet, I was never able to help him. I don't know if he was able to put the story together in the internet. Yeah, he
1: broke the hell out of the story. Yeah. I can't remember the guy's name, but he was head of this conglomeration here. But he was from China. I think he was from Beijing. And he was bribing his government. And it was a money laundering situation or something. But yeah, Al broke a pretty big story. He had asked me, like, who can I talk to? And I was like, well... Jake lives over there, I think. Call Jake. And so I might have been the one to tell him to look you up. He was trying to find one specific guy, and he finally found someone through someone at Coastal that knew someone who knew him or something. And he finally was able to put it all together. Yeah.
0: That's good to hear. So yeah. hopefully.
1: You didn't it let him down have... too bad, then.
0: <laughs> okay, that's good, that's good. I I should talk to him at some point. Yeah. It, I mean just a he's the legend, last man. of a a yeah. breed, yeah. yeah. Like still covering golf. Wow. And I have like Dawn on Facebook. I know that she, you know, was working at that campground. She had gotten out of journalism. You know, Steve Jessmore went to University of Michigan. I know that Randall, the photographer, does a bit of work for Reuters Reuters. now and again, which is cool to see. And Charles is retired and riding bikes and looking at birds, (laughs) which sounds about right. Exactly. (laughs) Another photographer. And have they gone through a bunch of editors since then? I remember Carolyn was the editor
1: yeah when carolyn retired i think she actually took a buyout but it was she was ready to retire anyway. She was going to retire as Hurricane Florence was approaching and she stayed for the flood coverage of Florence and I think she left shortly after that. So that would have been uh, shit. All the hurricanes kind of run together. 2016? 17? Something like that. And after her they hired the current editor. They hired Stephanie Peterson and she worked at one newspaper for her career. She's young and they got rid of the publisher so now she's like editor-publisher, basically. Which is weird, because she's kind of over-advertising, which is, you know, it's supposed to be a line,
0: but whatever. Yeah, Sign of the Times, I guess. I I remember the one other story about the Sun News. So I was going to leave the paper, and I'd saved up all my money, but I was, like, waiting to quit because I really wanted to go to the State Journalism Awards, Ah! because (laughs) Myrtle Beach had such, the Sun News had such a reputation for going to these awards (laughs) in the state capital, Columbia, and just like yep. Raising Hell. Um, we got banned and from
2: Spartanburg. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I could only imagine why. <laughs> and You know, I remember us, we had a theme for our table. I don't think there was a theme for the awards. I think we decided there was going to be a Mardi Gras theme for our table. Yeah, and there was like, never so a brought,
1: theme for the awards. It was always just us.
0: Kurt put on the big Sunny the Sun News mascot. Yeah. Like Sun Outfit. And yeah, just openly drinking at this like been drinking at this <laughs> award ceremony and throwing beads at people and all that. And I remember you won a huge stack of awards, which I don't even know what they were for, because like if you win one award, two awards, maybe it would have stood out. But you had like more plaques than anybody else. It was pretty amazing. So you were carrying these around and we were drinking. And I guess there must have been like six of us staying in one hotel room or something like that. Yeah. I know.
1: yeah. No money in journalism, man. Yeah. Can't afford your own hotel room.
0: <laughs> but that was a great time. And I remember then we drove, I was with Tanya and Kurt, and we drove 20 miles in the wrong direction before going back to Myrtle Beach in order to go to the state's only combination Kentucky Fried Chicken Long John Silver. <laughs> and, <laughs> Doing that and then driving back. And I remember on the way back was before Kurt dropped me off. I told him I was going to quit the next week and (laughs) bump him out. But I guess that's how it goes. (laughs) Yeah, that was kind of the last hurrah. So anyway, yeah. What drove you to finally leave the paper?
1: After Charles retired, I was the photo editor. People were getting laid off left and right. They had decided we weren't going to do any more furloughs because we didn't have enough people basically for it to matter, to save money. It just didn't help the bottom line. And it just felt like it wasn't going to get better. And there were some other things that just decision-wise about news coverage that bothered me. And I just felt like it was time to go. At the time, I had actually been trying to devise my plan B, you know, like when I got laid off and I was going through a list of the usual things, like I can go back to school, I can like major in education, I can be a science teacher, everyone needs a science teacher, mm-hmm. and my mom was sick, and I took family medical leave, and while I was home with her, the paper at Myrtle Beach called and said their editor was retiring and they'd like for me to take the job, so I had always kind of wanted to be the editor of a weekly, and seemed like a good idea, and I came back from family medical and met with them and decided to go.
0: So you've been there about two years?
1: A uh, year and a half, yeah.
0: Okay. And what what's that like?
1: It's not what I expected. I don't want to talk about the former editor. I wanted to do more than what he had done. I wanted to really cover the city and not just city government. And around the same time, we added another paper and I'm being called on to help with the other paper coverage areas. So I don't feel like I'm able to cover my city the way I want to cover my city. It's frustrating, to be honest. But I think, you know, there's a place for news about stormwater drainage, especially at the beach. That's a big deal. But but there also should be room for, you know, the freak on the street feature because everyone wants to read about a freak on the street. <laughs> it's difficult to figure out the balance. Like, I don't want to go to every city council meeting because there's two council meetings a month and a workshop that take the least amount of time is four hours. It's just a lot of stuff of just sitting there when I'd rather be out in the world. I don't know It's just frustrating.
0: Sure, because you're trying to do it all with just... Two people, right?
1: Yeah, well, I've got me and a reporter, and I just cover Myrtle, and he covers Surfside and tries to pick up on some of the county police stuff. And there's another reporter we have in North Myrtle Beach it's a different paper so i'm constantly having to go cover stuff for other people you know what i mean like visually for them Mm -hmm. but i don't write for them they need photos for their stories i go do that for them but consequently it leaves me out of my coverage area and i don't like doing a bad job and i I don't know if i'm doing a bad job or not I, i don't feel like i'm being able to cover it the way that i want to
0: sure i get that well uh that's the biographical part of the interview. Next, we'll talk about some stories and stuff. Any anything else you want to say before we move on?
1: No, not really. <laughs> no, cool. I mean, well, I, just, uh, good- I just got off vacation, so I'm in a better mood today than I would have been last Sunday. So,
0: sure, that's good. <laughs> I mean, you've obviously had a long career at this point, but if you could pick a story that you've done in the past that you're proud of and kind of. Walk us through how you got the idea, how you went about it, you know, start to finish, if there's anything that comes to mind.
1: I don't know if you were there when Georgetown Steel was closing. Were you there at the time?
0: That was before me. I mean, I remember driving around and yeah, it was already shut down at that point.
1: Seems like it was around 2008, somewhere around there, like all bad things yeah. There
0: was There was still like rumors of would the plant open back up, things like that when I showed up. I imagine it didn't.
1: No, it did. Uh, changed hands oh, a couple did. of times. Yeah. But it's unusual to have a union shop anywhere in South Carolina. And Steelworkers, yeah. it's a union shop. It was before I got here, one of the other photographers was telling me how he had covered a couple of strikes down there. And visually going down there, it was just really neat to see like this historic seaport with all these buildings built in the 1700s and stuff and at the end of the street is this honking steel mill you know i think georgetown is an incredibly visual place and it has this added thing of because of all the marsh and the water around it the light it looks different it bounces off of stuff different and it's just more golden and it probably has something to do with deposits coming out of the steel mill but it it looks pretty they were getting ready to have a union meeting and just from living here a long time in covering all that stuff I had gotten to know several of the people that worked at the steel mill you know like on my days off or whatever I would go down and Like go to bars and stuff in Georgetown and talk to everybody. So they were telling me that the steel mill was gonna close. I told some people at the paper. Nobody really seemed to care. It had been dwindling anyway, and I think everyone just kind of expected it. But you know, my point was there's 364 families that alone, not even like the businesses that support it, but that's 364 men and women that are gonna lose their jobs. You know, it's not massive like large cities, but that's a big deal for down here. And I kind of talked my way into doing a soup to nuts about the transition of the steel mill. And in a way, I got kind of lucky because I hit it like, at exactly the right time. Because I got in with the union guys and I got in. To the mill before they stopped letting people go in the mill. The people at the steel mill offices would talk to me. They knew I had done some stuff, and I was honest and upfront with them, and I wouldn't slant it to fit whatever way I wanted it to go. And the way to tell the story, I thought, was through one steel worker's eyes. So I just mm-hmm. basically kind of moved in with this guy and his family, and <laughs> just, I was like down there all the time. And they were nice enough to put up with me. Like, I would go grocery shopping with them. I would go weekend camping trips. I would go to work with him. He was fixing up his mom and dad's house. We'd go over there and like every part of his life we would cover. And at the same time the steel mill actually didn't close. This environmentalist bought the steel mill while I was starting to do my story. So I got hooked up with him and from his perspective it doesn't make sense why he's an environmentalist buying a steel mill unless you really Mm -hmm. do intend to close it and turn it into a park or something. I mean but he that he was still going to make steel. He wanted to put these new filter things on the chimneys and stuff to keep it from going all over town. And he got Mm -hmm. it painted and sealed up and stuff like that. And I don't know if he ran out of money or what exactly happened, but he sold the mill. And all this is going on while I'm working on this I think it's like three-month project it all fell into place and the story came out right as the steel mill had changed hands to another corporation around the same time they had filed for bankruptcy and so I was going back and forth to court with them and it was like this supercharged I, I don't know if that will ever happen in my life again like just get like this little idea to kind of profile a steel worker in the uncertainty of his life and then everything happens like right then that was like one of my favorite stories that just by fate it all all lined up.
0: I mean, when the stories start coming, I imagine you have a lot of photos ready to go for the front page.
1: Yeah, well, I so do... it too, so it was, um,
0: oh, it
1: was nice. the whole thing,
0: yeah. So did you do one big package still on like this guy's life, or how, how exactly was it when you put it out? Like what format?
1: His name was Devin, and uh, we wound it kind of through his eyes about what was happening. I think one of the last things that happened was they got paid as the new company was coming in and all the paychecks bounced. So they had this burn the, the paycheck party in front of the steel mill. <laughs> I think they had a strike right after that but it was just weird how i was just going to tell this one guy's story about uncertainty and then all the stuff that would have made him uncertain happened during the time i was covering it i think Mm -hmm. we ended up we put out it wasn't just like a front page spread we did like a special section it started on the front and then we did a a section on the inside with it
0: cool and did you win any awards for that i mean i know you won a lot of awards when i was there i was never sure for what
1: (laughs) yeah i i got i got a lot yeah,
0: but did sure. that, that specific project win the South Carolina Press Awards or anything like that? Yeah, yeah. It
1: won for a couple of things.
0: Wow. And do you keep in touch with this guy? What what did end up happening to him?
1: It's weird. I see him occasionally. He goes to Costco here in Myrtle Beach, and I see him sometimes with his kids around Costco. He's doing fine. He was a welder at the steel mill and welders are kind of in high demand and he ended up just doing that full time, kind of starting his own little business. So He's doing well. His wife started a beauty shop and they're doing great. Obviously, we kept covering it after that package and all the contacts I had from doing that, we used during the follow-up coverage and other reporters would come in and do the words after that. But a lot of people lost their jobs and some were able to go Retraining and some just lost everything they had. But now a new company has it. It's a lot smaller scale operating wise, but it's on the same footprint that it was before. So it takes up a couple blocks at the end of Front Street, right on the water.
0: Yeah, I remember it being pretty imposing, I guess I would say. I didn't go down to Georgetown that much, but I went down, you know, three, four times. I mean, it's good to hear that it's still operating in some capacity. The way things were going, I don't know that people were very optimistic, but...
1: They had fights because of their location. They would have fights with the people in the historic shops on Front Street. You know, a lot of the bougie places didn't want a steel mill on their street. And there was calls for boycotting some of the businesses downtown because they Said negative things about the steel mill. At the end of the day, they all made nice and hugged each other, but that's part of Georgetown. You've got this steel mill at one end and these incredibly historic buildings that line the street. It's like a a little miniature Charleston, you know? You probably weren't here for the big fire. It burned up a big chunk of the center block on Front Street, and all the buildings had to be torn down, and it's still a big hole. They still haven't rebuilt it. And I know it's been at least seven years since the fire.
0: But uh, anyway, it sounds like, yeah, good instincts, right place, luck, right luck. time. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I mean, I always prefer to say it's better to be lucky than good. Yeah. But you're both, so yeah. <laughs> So good that luck. worked out. Do you uh, have any other stories you'd like to talk about? Anything else come to mind?
2: Um,
1: yeah, there was a little school in Pauly's Island called uh, Miss Ruby's, and it was a one-room schoolhouse, and it mainly served the African-American kids From this little island called sandy island Mm -hmm. the only way in or off of the island was by boat and the school was established by miss ruby and her husband i can't remember his name but they were descendants of slaves and the the island itself was populated by descendants of slaves and it's not a tourist attraction, it's just it's a little island out there, and some of the kids were from near the Polleys area, but it was all black kids, and it was so cool. I mean, you would have one little part of the room would be fifth graders, and one part would be second graders, and another part would be English. It was really neat, and it was a man that taught the math stuff. And, uh, these two women, one taught like social studies in English and one taught the little tiny kids. And the one that taught the little tiny kids, she had this big wooden paddle. And if anyone like did anything spoke when they weren't supposed to, you had to go up front and hold your ankles and she would spank you with that big wooden paddle. Her name's Carolyn. <laughs> and, um, I used to go down there, like if I didn't have anything to do and I was already on that end, I would just stop in at the school. Cause it was just, it was amazing. To take photos in there And I would just stop in And hang out And it was at the time Owned by the Episcopal Church And the Episcopal Church Wanted to close it So they knew That they had like One more school year to go Before it was going to be closed So I spent a lot of time Just hanging out there With the people And there was one day I was sitting in there This little girl turned around I can't remember her name I think it was Tasha She turned around And like stuck her tongue out at me She was like in second grade Or something I stuck my tongue back out (laughs) at her And she started giggling And the little boy beside her her said something and she said something to him and then she turned around and started talking to me and miss carolyn had already started class and i knew that she was going to start whooping somebody and she <laughs> went back there to me and said you grab your ankles and i was like no <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and she said you were talking in my class she was serious she wasn't trying to teach a lesson to the kid she was going to whoop me and and i was like no I'm grown. I'm not going to, you're not going to whoop me. She was like, (laughs) now. And I was like, you hit me with that thing. That's assault. I'm calling the police. She was like, now. And she scared the shit out of me. (laughs) She ended up like not spanking me because I just sat there and stared at her. And she finally like went back. But I think if I had stood up, she would have started spanking me. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. But they closed the, the little school and get to the graduation. It was just Very sweet, and probably one of the last one-room schoolhouses left anywhere when it closed. This was out on the island? No, no, no. The school was on the mainland. The school was on Pauly's Island, which is, that's mainland. The kids would come from around Pauly's and over on Sandy Island, yeah.
0: Have you been out to Sandy Island out of curiosity?
1: Oh, yeah. Gorgeous.
0: What do people do out there?
1: Work on the, the mainland side. Everyone has a boat. They boat over and work in hotels or doctor's offices, you know, whatever. I think there's a judge that actually lives out there. There's doctors. I mean, it's just, it's a little village. It's pretty cool. Yeah. The kids go back and forth to school. There's a South Carolina's only school boat. It goes out there and picks them up and brings them to the bus on the inland side. But there was a storm coming in one night and some people were getting off work. And they were just trying to go home, and their boat flipped while they were trying to go home, and I think seven people died. Oh wow! Yeah, but the one survivor was this little baby. I wish I could remember his name, but his mother died in the accident. But they found him, I think, a mile downriver. He was tied to one of the seats from the boat, not the school boat, wow. it was their boat. And um poor little guy had a lot of health problems. His grandmother, who lives down in Georgetown, adopted him, and her name is Rosalind. She's incredible, and she raised him. I saw her, I think, about a year ago, and I think his name is Elijah, and he had some ongoing health issues just from, you know, he was deprived from oxygen and was probably injured in the the boat accident, but he's doing great. Everybody's doing well. Such a small little village, to lose that many people in one night is just beyond tragic.
2: Yeah, yeah. Wow. And they
1: changed a couple of things, like right after the boat accident before you know there wasn't a lot of requirements for wearing life vest and stuff going back and forth, and they changed that and changed several things, but like anything else, right after it happens, you go back down there a year later and it's all back to the way it was when no one's looking so
0: right I mean, I can imagine I don't know it must be tough living there I mean now with all these hurricanes, seemingly almost yeah. every year. Yeah, like, we went through how... this
1: year we had we were off a little bit, but we had like big major ones, like major for us, three years in a row and the hurricanes themselves don't actually cause the damage around here. It's more the flooding that comes afterwards. And you know, it just mm-hmm. it seems like as soon as someone gets almost back on their feet, their house is flooded out again. And it's always in areas that like never flooded before. So we're climate change, man. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Exactly.
0: Okay. So yeah, this part's the lightning round. So the first question is, describe to us if, if it's a work day, you wake up, what's your morning routine?
1: Coffee. Walk my dog while I'm doing all this, check online to see if anything happened while I was asleep. And hopefully I've already made appointments and have a couple of story ideas to work on. At night, I'm usually like shooting sports. So and all in between posting and writing and editing. On Wednesday, I have to go to Conway. That's where the newspaper office is for production day. The print product comes out on Fridays. We put the print product together on Wednesday so it can be printed on Thursday.
0: And then the next question is, what is a must-read publication that you look at almost every day?
1: Probably New York Times.
0: Okay. And in terms of local news, I mean, are you still, I forget what the Sun News' website is these days, but is that still the number one place to go for news around there? Is it more of the TV stations, or where do you get your local oh, wow.
1: news? I don't want to hurt my friend's feelings at the Sun News, but... Um, <laughs> <laughs> a little bit, of everybody this market anyway the everyone seems to cover about the same thing about the same stories, checking online you can tell like if one t v station is working on something that nobody else has, or the Sun news is working on something that nobody else has
0: and then what is a publication you read, listen to, watch, whatever, just for fun that doesn't have to do with work
1: n p r um, what's that station? Shows like murder stuff. ID,
0: yeah, sure, yeah, true crime, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. yeah, yeah. American cool. Horror yeah, Story.
0: No. What is the best journalistic article, piece, or whatever you consumed recently that you would recommend to people?
1: Back to the New York Times, I guess, the 1619 Project from the Times.
0: Oh, yeah. It it came out last
1: month, I think. It's massive. I mean, it's amazing.
0: It's like the untold story of slavery or something like that is how they build it. I'm trying to remember.
1: Yeah, not just slavery, but the influence of black Americans on America, from slavery through today. And every single aspect of every life is influenced by it, whether they know it or not.
0: Yeah, I'll have to check that out. I might have gotten the, the wrong impression about it. I thought it was more historical.
1: Yeah, it has the historical part and goes up into modern day police violence against blacks, stuff like that, it, everything. It's math. I'm telling
0: Uh, you. Yeah, I'll have to check it out. Is there any particular subject matter you read or look at outside of work that isn't related to your job, a hobby, or like it if you read a lot about sports, music, whatever?
1: Uh, (laughs) I I just read a lot of books. I just started on the Tattooist from Auschwitz. I finished up the Handmaid's Tale sequel, The Testaments, recently.
0: Um, You mostly read fiction? yeah 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 I'm the same non-fiction a yeah. little bit too much like work sometimes exactly exactly <laughs> is Twitter important to you
1: it is not to me I felt like we have to do it for work That's to me it's a work thing if I didn't work at a newspaper I, I don't give a shit sure it just feels like everyone's just kind of blowing their own horn or whatever I, I just, it's just boring
0: has it become a, important to local news like do you hear about news first
1: no not on Twitter no, no not on Twitter you know our local stations and some Sun News and us, we tweet shit all the time, but it, it doesn't get retweeted. I just feel like you're yelling into a empty room, but your bosses tell you you have to yell into that room, so everyone's, like, yelling in a room. <laughs> you know, you can look at how many times something was retweeted or, you know, liked or whatever, and the numbers, to me, just don't seem to be there. But on the other hand, it doesn't take that long to do, so...
2: You know, it's oh, that's true
1: it just takes a second so you can yell in the empty room for a second and then go on about your life Like, at least for the Herald, we have a lot more Facebook interaction than anything else. You can actually get the word out, I think, a little bit faster and get the substance of what you're working on out there a little bit more than if you tweet it. We do our Friday night football coverage, and we're constantly telling people, check Twitter, check Twitter for updates, and blah, 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 and we're getting a lot more eyeballs on it on Facebook than we are on Twitter. But again, Mm -hmm. it's faster on Twitter, so...
0: And then the next are a series of yes or no questions. The first one is Glenn Greenwald, yes or no? Yes. Any reason why or why not? That's
1: the person that wrote the Snowden story, that what Snowden was doing. Correct.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: Well, yeah, I mean I think the story needed to get out there. What, is there. something I'm missing or
0: there are a lot of different things about him. Like he actually lives in Brazil randomly. So some people here like him or don't like him for various reasons. The, the publication he run, runs just published a bunch of leaked text messages between like prosecutors about corruption cases. So people oh. do or don't like him because of that. In the US now, he's like thinks the whole like Trump Russia thing is a hoax. So despite him being oh, kind really? of a left-wing guy, he's a very con- contrarian guy. So huh. I guess, you know, whichever side is the underdog, he likes to pick them.
1: Bullshit. Um, he, he thinks the Trump administration is the underdog?
0: Well, in this case, he thinks, you know, people are out to get them over this uh, Russia thing and all the Russia thing stuff is just made up. I guess it's probably more nuanced than that. But, well, that's um... bullshit. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> anyway. So, and then the next one is... Is Vice Media, so like either Vice Documentaries, Vice Magazine, uh, yes or no?
1: I don't really look at any of the, the Vice stuff.
0: Okay, that's fair. And then this one, it depends if you've seen it or not. The Wire Season 5, yes or no? Uh, It's about journalists.
1: I know people that absolutely love it. A friend of mine actually down in New Orleans loves it. I just haven't seen it. Okay, no worries. It's very specific.
0: (laughs) And then the next one's a little bit more theoretical. It's uh, deplatforming, which is like, should we cover... Nazis or climate change deniers or these sorts of people who are very on the fringes so like deplatforming taking away their platform yes or no
1: should we cover them or not cover them what, yeah what is deplatforming yeah.
0: don't cover it them? means like if you deplatform them you would say i'm not going to cover them at all because wow. you know we shouldn't give them any attention cuz in some form well, or another i guess covering a nazi gives them attention even though even if you're critical of them, if you get what i mean
1: uh, when i lived in a town there was a Klan march and the editors didn't want to cover it they said don't go don't cover it and mm. i went because there's the potential for something to happen I don't think covering something makes it legit, and I don't think covering something makes those ideas legitimate. And I just think we have a responsibility to cover stuff,
2: you know, a
1: Nazi Nazi or what. I mean, I don't think that if if there's some crazy-ass Nazi in town that's standing on a street corner doing whatever he wants to do, and there's not, by the way, but what if there was? I I think that we should cover that, but not just— like have a soul piece on him. You know, obviously you want to talk to other people, you know, other sources in disagreement and agreement with them. Back in the day, you were here for the Tea Party stuff, right?
2: Yeah, yeah, for sure.
1: Yeah, we covered the Tea Party shit. And when it first started, it was pretty much exclusively just anti-Obama rallies. And they had Obama dolls hanging on Mm -hmm. little ropes and shit at their rallies. I remember that specifically. And they started getting legitimate. I mean, they started doing other stuff besides that, but I don't know. I just think we have to cover shit. It doesn't matter what it is. I don't think it puffs them up or encourages recruitment. Is it Idaho where they have a bunch of white supremacist encampments? I would be curious if any one single individual in that encampment went as a reaction to some news they saw, they decided that they were going to be immediately filled with hate and go do their thing.
0: No, that makes sense. The next question is, if you had to trade places with one journalist living or dead and you would have their career, who would it be?
1: Dorothea Lang, probably. She was on the federal grant. She went out and documented the Dust Bowl. She took that famous photo of a migrant mother with the children.
0: Oh yeah, you know. I, I mean, I definitely know about. the yeah. Dust Bowl photos. Yeah. yeah. And North it does DIA make LA. me
1: wonder if she did that. I think it was with WPA, but I'm not 100% sure about that. But I know she wasn't on assignment with you know Life Magazine or something. That was a grant-inspired project she did. And I'm working now. You remember Isaac Bailey?
0: Oh, yeah, the columnist. Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah, Isaac. We just got a grant from the University of Southern Cal Annenberg School to do a series of stories. And it's print-driven, basically. We're going to go do this project. And... To fulfill the grant, it has to be printed in a newspaper. So it's almost like back when Dorothea Lang was working, that's how a lot of documentary work got done through grants. And Mm -hmm. I'm just wondering if we're slowly going back to that. As the decline of newspapers goes down, people still want to see reality and know what's happening. Maybe it's being funded now through grants like it was back then when it was depression times and newspapers couldn't send people out there to document. workers. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah, definitely. What is one thing you wish you could go back and tell your younger self?
1: Brown liquor makes you throw up. Don't do it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Add some years back to your life. <laughs>
1: yes, please.
0: <laughs> Let's see. And then what is one thing most people don't know about you?
1: I really can't sing. Like when I'm by myself, I think I sound pretty good, and nobody else seems to think I sound good. But I, I really, I, I'm a good singer. <laughs> In my head, I'm on key. It's, it's, it's
0: working. Need the home karaoke setup by yourself?
1: <laughs> I don't need that um, shit, man. I just let it go.
0: That's cool. And then, what's your favorite film, book, TV? Movie, whatever about journalists, so like a meta thing about journalists.
1: You know, the normals like Citizen Kane and all the president's men and Spotlight. But there was a movie in the eighties, I guess. It was called The Killing Fields.
2: Oh yeah.
1: It was about Mare Rouge and Cambodia, the reporter, I think he was supposed to be a Washington Post reporter, I'm mm-hmm. remembering. And Um, John Malkovich was the photographer, and I can't remember the guy's name that was the reporter. He was Jack McCoy on Law and Order.
0: But, yeah i've heard that and, movie's a yeah, classic i've never seen it yeah, but uh, it's I should. amazing
1: it is it is amazing and i like early edition i know this is goofy as shit but i love early edition <laughs> i wish it was back on tv it was about gary hobson in, in chicago and he got the chicago sun times a day before it was published
0: yeah i remember that show <laughs> <laughs> that show was a that show was great yeah it's that 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 actor is that the dude who went on to friday night lights and that am friday i misremembering yeah. this?
2: yeah yeah
0: that is a great concept for a show. I'm sure I'm sure they'll remake that at some point. They remake everything.
1: It was just Only- so sticky sweet, you know? I mean, it, it's-
0: <laughs> <laughs> And then uh, the last question is, qualifications aside, if you couldn't be a journalist, what job would you do?
1: Park ranger. No, no, <laughs> veterinarian. I'd be a veterinarian. I'd be a veter- veterinarian.
0: That's for good. Park, that's for good.
1: park animals. I don't know. <laughs> uh, veterinarian, probably.
0: Big game. Yeah. That- that's cool. Okay, cool. Well, that's the interview. So uh, thanks so much Yay. for doing this. Thanks well, been for being with, with me. You, Jack.
1: I appreciate it.
0: That's our show. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Janet Morgan, editor for the Myrtle Beach Herald in South Carolina. I'll post links to some of Janet's work and other things we talked about in the podcast description and also on our show page, foreignpod.podbean.com. If you like the show, please subscribe to it in Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts and leave a five-star review. Beyond that, it would be a huge help if you also write out a positive review saying what you like about the podcast. It helps to get it more attention on Apple Podcasts and elsewhere. You can find us on Twitter at, at foreignpod or tweet about us with the hashtag hashtag foreignpod. On Facebook, our page is facebook.com foreignpod. Above all, if you know someone who might like the podcast, please recommend it to them. The show is produced and edited by me. Our music is a track called Love Chances by Makai Beats. There's more information on that in the podcast description and on our show page. Please look for the next episode to be posted on Sunday, December 1st. Until then, I'm Jake Spring, and this is Foreign Correspondence.